Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's the afternoon of Friday, February the 10th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics Wrap of the Week from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan, sinking into the leather armchairs of the book-lined common room of the Irish Times this week and nursing their favourite Friday afternoon tipple are Cormac McQueen and Jack Horgan-Jones. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Good afternoon, Hugh. Hi, Hugh. How was your week? Ah, oh, Wonderful. Any week with more Bertie Ahern at the end of it than there was at the start of it has got in as a good week or at least a very interesting one. Yeah, we're going to come to that actually straight away. But just to say, my week was grand, except I a pox upon, I don't know whether she's a goddess or a saint these days, but a pox upon Bridget, whoever she is, because fitting five days work into four days is, is not a lot of fun at my end. But it's over now. And yes, the nation is on fete with the return of Bertie Ahern, the return of the king, I suppose, to, to misquote Tolkien, to the Irish political scene. Cormac, you were there last night for this. Well, yes, you know, it's it's a perhaps it's a political bubble thing, but there was there was a certain giddiness when the, the news emerged on Wednesday that that Bertie Hearn had paid his 20 euro annual membership fees and, and returned to the Fianna Fáil fold as a, an ordinary member of of his uh, Dublin Central common. We all we all know what happened. Uh, there was adverse findings about his accounts to the Mahan Tribunal in 2012. Michal Martin was preparing to expel him. Bertie jumped before he could be pushed. And uh, for more than a decade now, he's 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 only really surfaced uh, doing the international statesman role, you know, attending elections in places like Papua New Guinea and offering advice to peace processes around the world. But also more recently then, uh, as a commentator on Brexit and and particularly the dispute over the Northern Ireland Protocol, but but it seems the time is ripe for a return to Fianna Fáil, given that this is the twenty fifth anniversary of the the Belfast Agreement. April tenth, Good Friday, nineteen ninety eight, was the day it was all signed. He was, of course, one of the key architects, and uh, it, there, there was there's been some discussion about his return to Fianna Fáil since since September when it was raised at a parliamentary party meeting. So uh, when he when he turned up last night at a uh, Dublin-based South Fianna Fáil event to mark the the anniversary of the Belfast Agreement. He 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 got out of the car to the awaiting uh, press uh, horde. Uh, camera lights on, uh, cameras flashing. Said said good to see us all, uh, and uh, in, was was only too happy to uh, to talk about his his return to to, to Fianna Fáil as as he says I'm I'm only an ordinary member. I've I've no intention of looking for my old job back. So uh, Michal Martin can breathe a sigh of relief there. Um, and uh, and uh, yeah, he believes that the time is right as well. He wants to he wants to help out on on, on Northern Ireland on the the protocol on Brexit. He's 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 willing to offer advice to to Taoiseach Leo Varadkar, to Michal Martin, same way that he did with with Simon Coveney when he was Minister of Foreign Affairs. He's he's no intention of of running for political office. He, he's or he no intention of of uh, <laughs> revealing whether he'll run for political office, I suppose. He, he he won't go for the old job, but he was asked, of course, about any uh, designs on Oris and Uchtaron in 2025 and, uh, you know, fobbed it off with the, oh, it's very far away, it's a long, long way away, you know, um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping I'm still be alive at that point. It seems to be his, his stock answer on that one of the last, the last couple of months. 
offered a chance to rule it out. Of course, he he didn't uh, he didn't rule it out. Uh, he he uh, he he just kind of fobbed it off with the oh, it's very far away. Uh, so you know this he's going to keep us guessing on that one for some time, I think. And uh, it it will certainly be intrigue into the the mix of of that election coming up in uh, two years time. Um, yeah, Jack, you were dispatched to the Goose Tavern, which uh, is not far away from me, my home here, just up on the other side of Griffith Avenue, leafy Dublin North suburbs, where Bertie has been known to drop in for a pint of bass and you talked uh, you talked to the locals about their thoughts about this matter I dispatched myself actually Hugh the reason being that I, I too was once a resident of that rather leafier part of Trimcranger um, and I had a pint on occasion in the Goose Tavern a mighty pub and uh, once I noticed that there was a picture on the wall of a goose that had laid a golden egg that was rather portentously cracked and I noticed that the 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 artist had affixed his signature to the bottom right hand corner in block caps B Ahern so I took a photograph and it was actually terrifyingly enough in 2014 that I first tweeted that photograph and then tweeted again during Bertie Ahern's uh, appearance at the banking inquiry the following year um, but I thought this was finally time to move the the goose uh, the golden goose and the goose tavern and Bertie Ahern from the interwebs to the pages of the Irish Times. So I went up to the, the pub in the middle of the day, had a cup of coffee, I hastened to add, and talked to the uh, talked to the owner there who regaled me with the story of how Bertie, with the assistance, it must be said, and he implied heavily the heavy assistance of a local artist, um, composed this masterpiece uh, when he was Taoiseach for a competition that was run by the Star, and then it was latterly raffled off for, for charity. But obviously the, uh, the artistic load of... Um, somebody who was involved in the kind of economic uh, policies that culminated in the economic collapse uh, of someone who did all that and then sketched out a golden goose that, or a goose that had laid a golden egg, which was in some way fundamentally flawed, uh, was too much, too much of a metaphor to resist. So I went up and I spoke to them and they were all convinced that he's running for, uh, for the Aris and, and not only that, but you know, that this was his, his long-term plan and uh, that he'd have it wrapped up if he went for it which I suppose remains to be seen. Um, that is not a view that's shared in Fianna Fáil, and I think that this is one of the most interesting kind of splits that has emerged from the whole kind of Bertie rejoining Fianna Fáil's story, because initially when it broke on Wednesday, the Irish Independent broke the story, and some of the suggestions were that this won't go down well with some parts of the parliamentary party. There will be a lingering concern over everything that Bertie represents. And... Myself and Cormac were reporting that out across the following kind of day and, and picked up effectively none of that. In fact, quite the opposite. Uh, anyone who I spoke to in Fianna Fáil was absolutely delighted at this news. Um, you know, there was everything from a recognition of what he has done uh, in the North and his role potentially in, uh, you know, be it a semi-formal or formal or totally informal role, but his role in easing the passage of what is to come, whether that would be a kind of structural reform of the Good Friday Agreement institutions, but basically his living, his 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 role as a living bridge to that political generation that struck the Good Friday Agreement, many of whom either aren't involved anymore or simply are dead. So, you know, he is someone who is not dead and is there and is, is interested and is willing to play a part. So there was a, a, a great laudatory moment for that. Um, there was discussions of, you know, the fact that he was also a bridge back to a more successful era of Fianna Fáil. And one person put it to me, I'm paraphrasing here, but they said something along the lines of, you know, it, re it reminds us of when we dominated Irish politics. So I think there's this kind of almost atavistic thing going on in Fianna Fáil. You know, they love to see it and the grassroots love to see it, the base love to see it. But that 
hits a hard brick wall with many members of the parliamentary party that I talked to when you raise the question of the presidency. They don't like the idea of him becoming a kind of live electoral element. They don't like the idea of having to go out and potentially, at some point in 2025, having to defend or explain the findings of the Mahan Tribunal. They don't like the idea of someone who is so demonstrably from the past and carries such baggage from that era being put forward as Fianna Fáil's representative for, you know, uh, for the highest office of state, obviously, but also somebody who might, you know, speak to a generation that doesn't and hasn't voted for Fianna Fáil and hasn't any relationship with the party. Uh, and they don't see any political dividend uh, for themselves in it. And, you know, pardon the French here, but the best line someone gave me about the Fianna Fáil uh, parliamentary party and their relationship with Bertie O'Hearn was that they don't harbour any ill will towards him, but they're fucked if they're going to screw their own careers for him. <laughs> Very reasonable. I, I'll ask you about the presidential thing in a minute, come up with, but Jack, can I also ask you, I mean, Bertie O'Hearn famously in his pomp, which lasted for, you know, 30 years or so, um, you know, was a man of Drumcondra, was a man of the pubs of Drumcondra, was known to frequent various various hostelries. And then I think after his downfall, he kind of retired, went into his shell a bit, did he? Is it fair to say? Partly because of, the, to some extent, his uh, the results for the Mahan Tribunal, but also because, you know, a lot of people blamed him for what went wrong with the economy too. And so the, the sheen very much went off him, even locally. Is that true or was he still a bit of a local star? Uh. To an extent, I mean, much like other denizens of, of Drumcondra, I, uh, I, I engaged in my own bit of Bertie spotting from time to time. And, you know, whenever it came up, people would say, oh, you know, I saw him in, I saw him in the goose. Or for a while, actually, I think he was on a bit of a fitness buzz because he was spotted in the, the, ho- the gym of the Regency Hotel quite a bit, um, sporting a Dublin tracksuit, if I remember my Bertie lore correctly. Um, but yeah, look, I mean, part, part of the, the, the Bertie mythology has always been tied up with Drumcondra to an extent and the Drumcondra mafia and that group of people around him um, that were part of that remarkable political machine that in many ways exemplified uh, Fianna Fáil's success of the era. Um, and, and, and as he alluded to himself last night, not only has the political success at a national level fallen away, you know, a lot of that, a lot of the people who populated the scene around him are gone. Some of them are dead. You know, some of them were were a generation older than him. And a lot of those names um, that were kind of seen as Bertie enforcers just simply don't ring out anymore. You know, Dublin Central, I don't think has had a Fianna Fáil TD since 2007, since he stepped down. And um, I think they may only have one councillor there who was co-opted when Mary Fitzpatrick went into the into the Shannon. So it's, it's it, in many ways, it's... It's similar to, to the wider party machine of, of Fianna Fáil in that it's not what it once was and is struggling to kind of um, to, to make the impact with voters that it, that it once had. You know, Drumcondra itself, Dublin, uh, Dublin uh, Central rather, is, is a, a changed beast to what it used to be uh, when Bertie Hearn was, was stomping the highways and byways. I was talking to someone yesterday and they're making the point that like in some parts of Dublin Central, there's 10% home ownership and 70% of people identify as, as non-Irish. So, uh, you know, what is what is the relevance? How do you speak to voters like that about Fianna Fáil? Um, you know, it's not, it's not the Fianna Fáil of old and it's different messages of old as well, you know. Yeah, so Cormac, an easy question for you. I've got to sum it up the ghost of Christmas past here. The 2025 presidential election, if uh, if it's between Enda Kenny, Jerry Adams and Bertie O'Hearn, who wins? <laughs> I like that. I mean, it is the uh, presidential elections, as we know, they're the root canal of Irish politics. You know, they every they're, they're 
horribly painful and uh, the media acts as the dentist just digging in the 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 instruments to to cause the most agony for the uh, the participants as possible uh, i mean do do uh, out of out of those three you'd have to suspect that enda kenny would would uh, have the least to be concerned about in terms of what might be dug up about about his past but i mean <laughs> does finafall want to go through the process of of hearing about dig outs and a minister for finance that didn't have a, a bank account and and all of the very bizarre stuff that that emerged from the the Mahan tribunal um we all we all know the questions about Jerry Adams and and the you know the was he or wasn't he in the IRA he's always denied it but but there's there's obviously been much skepticism about that and then what you know what what he what he would have been involved in during the troubles i mean we had a bit of that with Martin McGuinness in 2011 and he was he was openly somebody who was in the IRA in in the the bad old days uh, what would it be like if if Jerry Adams was running and then Enda Kenny, I suppose he he could run as the as the the person that brought the Irish economy back from the the brink. But you know, would he fancy it first of all, and secondly, would he would he have any level of popular support given that he's also associated with the the austerity years? You know, when you know the years of water charges, the years of the the troika uh, coming in and demanding that we we do various things that we don't want in terms of taxation and all the rest of it. So you know, I. I I, I struggle to see how I, any of those three would would be popular, and and perhaps to, it would benefit a, a, another candidate altogether. Perhaps non-party, perhaps a celebrity, uh, you know, that that might come through the middle of of a, a field like field like that. But I was I was it's one more thing that I I was struck with uh, by by Bertie's appearance in um, in Balls Bridge last night. You know, he he walked in. There was a standing ovation of three hundred people. Many many hands were shook on the way up to the stage. It it seemed to me. I mean, I was in college at the time, but it seemed to me like a a, a, a almost like a Fianna Fáil Ardesh of the early early noughties in City West, where the kind of reception that he would have gotten back then in 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 microcosm uh, last night. So there there's certainly a, a a group within Fianna Fáil that are are pleased to see him back. Uh, you know, are proud of of his legacy when it comes to. The Good Friday Agreement, if if nothing else, and uh, and uh, would would you know may perhaps would feel that he, he could run a, a an election campaign on that on that basis. I mean, the, just the last question briefly on that, Jack. Um, Fianna Fáil will be trying to climb out under the shadow of what happened fourteen years ago now for the last fourteen years, and it's arguable whether they've actually managed to do that successfully. Surely, the last thing they want is uh, is everybody to be reminded of that. Yeah, absolutely, and that's I think yeah, have that hostility in the parliamentary party to um to the idea of of Bertie coming on the pitch politically, um and if you if you broaden the scope for a moment and use the frame of the presidential election just to kind of try and figure out, you know, the extent to which they are still burdened by that legacy. Generally, you you pull your presidential candidates from kind of party grandes or kind of mid ranking people who don't have a kind of blemished record and, and might travel well with the public. So like, you know, someone like Leonie Rita, the, the uh, Sinn Féin candidate last time out. Um, and there's just not an awful lot of people who fall into that category within Fianna Fáil. And I was talking to someone in Fianna Fáil about this yesterday and we were kind of throwing around names and, and you know, all of the grand A's or elder statesmen of the party, they're tainted by the crash and Bertie has that worse than the rest of them. Um, so 
if if Fianna Fáil is trying to shift the perception, you know, it cannot be harking back to that generation, and neither neither should it be. Um, how it squares the circle of forming that new relationship of of being seen by voters, particularly voters of a certain generation, uh, as a credible voice, as a credible party on things like security, crime, housing and health uh, remains to be seen. But I think that definitely, whatever way they do it, can't and shouldn't be drawing on the rather checkered past that the current generation of kind of elder statespersons within Fianna Fáil has. It'd be Mihal Martin, wouldn't it? I mean, he'd be the obvious, the obvious one. Meal is the obvious one, yeah. But I mean, there's a, and, and and if he wants it as well, that's the big question. Yeah. I mean, there's some question, there's some 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 suggestion of you know he may look for a job in Europe. But I suspect if he does want it, yeah, he'd be the one. And and I suppose he's 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 match fit, so to speak, as well. You know, he'd be well well used to standing in front of microphones and batting away awkward questions in, in a way that some of them might be a bit rusty at. Right. Well, long way to go yet. My prediction is Miriam O'Callaghan, by the way, is the, in the answer to, to my question to Cormac, is Miriam O'Callaghan wins just if she chooses to stand. Oh, anyway, right. <laughs> we, we, we'll leave it there for a moment. We're going to take a break just to remind you if you are not already uh, to consider becoming a subscriber to the Irish Times so that you can follow Jack into the recesses of the of the Goose Tavern on a, on a Thursday afternoon as well as many other excursions and adventures that our journalists undertake on your behalf uh, every week. Uh, just go Go to irishtimes.com slash subscribe. We'll be right back after this. And you're very welcome back. Jack and Cormac are here. Cost of living crisis hasn't gone away. Arguably, it's getting worse. It's certainly continuing on with no sign of abating, Jack. Yes, um, but what is going to abate, or at least what abates under statute in uh, the coming weeks, are the host of... uh, cost of living related uh, exemptions and measures that were introduced in the budget. So some, uh, cast your mind back to um, to the budget and you'll recall that some of the uh, munificence of the government was felt in permanent increases, some was felt in, in once-off measures and some were was kind of felt in these kind of medium-term measures. Uh, Measures that uh, were designed to kind of tick off after after the winter, and and so you do see uh, you do see a lot of them coming up to expiry. So you have the nine uh, percent tourism and hospitality uh, VAT rate. You have the uh, the reduced VAT rate for gas and electricity. You have the lower prices for uh, auto fuels that have been achieved achieved by lowering excise duty, and then also you have the uh, the the misfiring temporary business energy support scheme, which has uh, attracted much um, much depressed levels of interest relative to relative to what uh, had been anticipated. I can't remember the figure that has actually been paid out or approved, but I think it's in the kind of mid tens of millions range. When this is for a, a scheme that the government had budgeted one point two billion for, so um, that is something that has not landed, and there's much kind of cogitation going on in government as to why that has been the case and whether they can do anything to kind of to 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 um to adjust it uh, to make it work a little bit better. Uh, and then there is the ongoing kind of political problem of uh, the deprivation or the difficulties at a household level associated with the cost of living crisis, which has been, I suppose, buffered to some extent by the um, by the uh, the 200 euro energy credits, the last of which is due to come through in March, but nonetheless is a very real thing. And we had a, a survey that was released this uh, this week by Bernardos, which described how 10% of people were accessing 
food banks or some kind of equivalent measure. And I think that that is something that kind of frames this debate, which is going to happen over this weekend and into early next week um, on further kind of cost of living measures, be they targeted or, or universal. Uh, I think that, you know, that that is not potentially a helpful thing for a government, particularly if you're in the departments of finance or public expenditure, and you're trying to to avoid spending um, because I think there is a bit of a head of steam building and indeed I think there's a head of steam building strangely enough on you know a push for more energy credits um, which is something that to my mind if I was the government and looking at it I'd think you know we're coming out of the winter uh, heating season uh, keep the powder dry for October, November if you have to go again then and if you're still facing elevated uh, retail prices for gas and electricity then do it then but apparently there's a there's a school of thought out there um, amongst many ministers that you know you need to do this again and it's and it's a universal measure therefore very pleasing to to voters so i think that'll be one of the kind of one of the battles that plays out over the next little while but battles there will be uh, over whether or not there will be goodies and the size of the goodies that do come yeah i mean like like everybody cormac i mean i was kind of taken aback when i saw my uh, energy bills over the last uh, the, the last couple of ones that landed, and um, I welcomed that universal support. But you know, let's be honest, I didn't need that universal support as well as a lot of the people, particularly the kind of people who Jack's referring to there, who are kind of accessing food banks. And if if, if there is an argument for some kind of support, um, is there not some argument for targeting it more as we move into the summer? And also, we're 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 quite unclear, as I understand it, wholesale energy markets have changed, you know, dramatically over the last few months, and prices have dropped quite a lot so um the natural impulse of politicians in power is to give away money but i'm guessing that um the minister for finance and the minister for public expenditure will be seeking to hold the line at some point whatever that line they deem to be sure i mean the 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 attraction of the 200 euro energy credit is it's it's simple you know it's popular um all yes the the gas wholesale gas prices are coming down but it does take a while for that to to come into effect there is a precedent of last year when there was the, the first the very first energy credit was was you know i think it was march april last year you know so it's it yes we're coming out of the winter but it but it happened last year which makes it a very difficult thing to argue against this year um but there's going to be a debate about this i think we'll see a, an overhaul in the temporary business support scheme given how it hasn't been too successful so far there are concerns in the green party over over you know continuing the the cuts related to fossil fuels uh, for obvious reasons uh, but but you know the 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 other parties have said there won't be a, a cliff edge in relation to in relation to the to the measures that are in place at the moment. So we can expect some of them to be continued. Uh, what I what I do think is going to happen over the coming months is is a, a kind of a replay of twenty twenty two. Inflation is still high. We don't know how the war is going to go in Ukraine and what impact that'll have on the international economy. And we will see repeated. Uh, calls over over the spring and summer for uh, cost of living measures, mini budgets perhaps as well uh, from Sinn Fein and other parties, uh, just to keep the pressure on the government and and you know to keep hammering the message that people are still struggling despite the supports that are in place. Uh, it's it's fertile ground, and uh, you know we might have a, a repeat of the early budget that we had last year, and which was with you know was massive massive eleven billion in spending. I think uh, it it I, I'd be very surprised if they can if they don't do it again this year if they can at all. Uh, that's that's kind of how I foresee the, the coming months playing out. And a related issue is the rise in interest rates, which impacts on some people more than it does on others. Impacts on some of them, and very seriously. Jack, I'm reading our colleague Cliff Taylor on this and that there are 
pressures out there to provide some kind of relief, return in fact to some kind of relief because mortgage interest relief was a big part of the of the Irish economy for many years and more or less dispensed with. But there are particularly for some people who are particularly suffering, perhaps because uh, they were perhaps in mortgage distress previously, they may have loans with other organisations rather than the major banks and they've really been coming under the cosh when it comes to rises in interest rates in the last few months. Yes, uh, and it's important to I think grasp um, the different segments of the of the mortgage market at work here, uh, because there there does seem to be a subgroup of people who had their loans sold to uh, to vulture funds, which was obviously part of the the great deleveraging that happened after the crash when all of the banks or the state through NAMA were uh, basically getting rid of anything that looked like a bad loan, and the uh, people who were there to buy them were these these funds. Uh, often backed by private equity. Um, and as they move through their own financing cycle, uh, they are more exposed to uh, overriding interest rates because they finance themselves on on markets rather than through deposits than your average uh, high street bank. So what you see is their headline interest rates for uh, variable products because they tend not to have fixed rate products moving up really, really rapidly. So you have these absolutely eye-popping levels of interest being levied on a group of people who obviously were already in some degree of distress at some point between now and 2008 because their loan fell into arrears and therefore they were classified as toxic debt and therefore they were sold on to a vulture fund. And they're now being hit with interest rates of up to 7%, which is uh, and, and rapidly escalating in line with ECB increases um, and making their mortgages really quite unaffordable. So you have a, a already vulnerable, heavily indebted in many instances, uh, cohort of people that the central bank has estimated to be about thirty eight thousand, so it's not massive, but neither is it tiny. Um, and you know, their their the 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 fear is that some new iteration of mortgage arrears, which is already a legacy problem in the Irish market, will will rear its head, and that will be difficult because uh, a how do you manage it, and b it's just it gives rise to all these terrible. Um, these terrible hard luck stories that people have, which in and of themselves become a political problem because the government ends up facing the charge that it faced for many years during the recession, which that it is indifferent to the plight of these people and prioritizes the uh, the interests of financial institutions uh, or financiers or global capital over uh, the interests of people. And that's obviously a very fertile populist trope. And that kind of is, is occurring at a time when there are other populist tropes that are kind of gaining um, gaining momentum around immigration and so on. So that's why I think it's a kind of politically volatile thing. On, on the back of that, you had also uh, Sinn Féin, I think, making an interesting push in this direction, introducing uh, a private member's motion on Wednesday, I think, of this week, um, where they were seeking for the reintroduction of mortgage interest uh, relief, which, is, as you say, Hugh, is obviously something that has been part of the Irish mortgage market for many years, phased out in 2020 on a staggered basis. But it's something that the current Minister for Finance, Michael McGrath, was a fan of back in 2015. I think it was actually uh, in a, a bill that he put forward, um, or at least controls on mortgage rates were in a, a bill that he put forward in 2015, which has now been kind of weaponized and thrown back at him by the Labour Party, who are also pushing this. So I think we should prepare to see a bit of a kind of redux of recession-era politics when it comes to the affordability of mortgage products, fair treatment of people by banks and 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 or you know and or vulture funds. Um, and you know this is this is something that I think. The, the government is potentially vulnerable on. Like before there was a housing crisis, you know, the obvious angle of attack was um, the fact that, that, you know, 
the government was soft on banks and, and hard on borrowers. Um, so I would expect to see that return with a vengeance so long as we are in this higher interest rate environment, which I think is at, is at least the rest of this year, probably. Um, and there will be an associated pressure, I think, on government to come up with some kind of uh, some kind of policy intervention that helps alleviate uh, the pressure, but without bestowing kind of preferential treatment on one class of borrower ahead of another or indeed skewing or screwing up the mortgage market, which is a really difficult balance to strike. Yeah, that sounds like a very tricky line to fill up. Um, we'll leave that subject there for the, for the moment. Every Friday, we each pick an article from the previous week's Irish Times that we want to recommend to our readers. Cormac, what were you reading? Uh, it was a story by uh, Simon Carswell today, actually. Um, phone ban for judges among new Irish dancing competition rules in the wake of fixing scandal. Uh, this is the... the murky and uh, cutthroat world of, of Irish dancing and all of these new rules have been put in place ahead of uh, this week's All-Ireland Championships down in, down in Kerry for, for judges and uh, you know they, they have been treated in some ways like a, a jury in a in a, a high-profile trial where where they've been told that uh, you, they have to dine away from the participants and and the, the Irish dancing teachers when they're having their lunch you know they're, they're, they're not to bring their phones smartwatches tablets anything like that from their hotel rooms uh, you know papers that they'll be using in the course of their judging uh, will will be provided in sealed envelopes and and taken away by specific people all, all, all of this on the back of concerns that that uh, this the, the decisions in 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 terms of the jigs and the reels uh, literally uh, were were being uh, influenced by by Irish dancing teachers or or people connected to the participants our listeners lead sheltered lives and they may not be aware of this scandal. Influenced how and in what way was influence being exerted? Oh, well, text messages, uh, suggestions in some cases of sexual favours, uh, you know, a very, as I say, murky stuff. Uh, but it, it has been a scandal in the Irish dancing world over the last uh, six months or so, I think. And uh, and it's, uh, it's it, we're seeing the outcome um, now in, in the, new, the new rules for judges at this weekend's competition. Yeah, I'm going to be very disappointed if there isn't a movie in this story at some point. I think it's prime material for a kind of a Baz Luhrmann-esque, strictly ballroom kind of approach to the whole the whole very colourful world of, of international world of, of Irish dancing. It is it is colourful, but I I think, well, just to jump in on Cormac's favourite article of the week for a second, what we lose sight of here, because of the colour involved, because it is, you know, great crack, uh, is that like this is actually it's quite a serious story as well you know it's a corporate governance scandal at a very large organization that a lot of people invest an awful lot of time and money into and is also like a cultural export of Ireland you know so all the more reason why to make a book or film out of it you're absolutely right what was your article uh, for this week I chose uh, our colleague Naomi O'Leary's um, Brussels letter uh, where she was writing at length about you know the, the far right and uh, she was listing a whole series of examples uh, of, you know, things that sounded very familiar and could have been plucked from our own pages in our coverage of the recent phenomenon that has occurred in Ireland, but it actually were taken from uh, various different countries across Europe going back five, six, seven, eight years. And she was talking about, you know, the susceptibility, I, su- I suppose, of, you know, modern democratic politics or modern European democratic politics to... Um, this kind of radicalization that occurs within electorates and how quickly it can emerge 
the moment that uh, there's a kind of perceived threat around something. And obviously the perceived threat now is around migration. So I just thought it was a fascinating and, and kind of clarifying insight into some of the wider kind of, you know, psychologies of of, of electoral politics that, that are underpinning one of the kind of big movements of of this age, I suppose, which is migration for whatever reason from one part of the world to the next and how how societies and how politics writ large can and should confront it and, and avoid, I suppose, making some of the mistakes that that were made uh, in the recent past by uh, by our colleague uh, governments in, in Europe. Yeah, I think it was a great piece. And it's, it, I, th- I thought it really illustrated one of the things that makes me glad to work for the Irish Times, to be honest, which is that we have a team of foreign correspondents and they can make connections between trends that are happening overseas and how they're relevant to Ireland in a way that I would suggest most of other Irish media organisations can't, which is another good reason to subscribe, of course. I'm going to pick, uh, my article is is one by Newton Emerson, uh, who is very good at sort of poking under the the hypocrisies of of Irish politics on both sides of the border. We had a lengthy discussion about, you know, the Irish Unity Project um, with the Irons Project earlier this week. Newton is kind of down at a much more granular level and he's looking at the way local politics plays out in places like Enniskillen, north of the border, Cavan, south of the border in relation to healthcare. The whole country, north and south, two different health systems, but they're very often operating under similar pressures with smaller regional hospitals being downgraded, central taking place. These things create all kinds of political tensions and political parties, even if they exist on both sides of the border, like Sinn Féin, they tend to ignore the reality of what's happening a few miles away and perhaps the kind of synergies and cross-border cooperation which are allowed for in the Good Friday Agreement but are rarely really have been acted on over the last over the last 35 years or so. It's a good piece. I'd recommend it. We are going to leave it there for the moment though. We'll be back with more articles and more news and more politics next week. But for now, thanks very much to Jack and to Cormac Uh, this podcast is produced by Declan Conlon it's engineered by JJ Vernon we hope you have a very nice weekend and thanks for listening